Westchester Talk Radio is broadcasting live. News, trends, and more. No one knows Westchester County better than we do. We are Westchester Talk Radio. Good day. Welcome to Westchester Talk Radio, westchestertalkradio.com. I'm John Marino, and we are produced by Shark Creative, made possible by Robeson Oil, the house that service built by Lipolis Electric. Don't be left in the dark. Get Lipolis by Hightower Westchester, managing your wealth to a fiduciary standard by White Plains Hospital, by Michael Labriola, landscape design and construction of our monk and by Tompkins Mayo Pack Bank. We are joined on the Cup of Joe political show by Westchester County Executive George Latimer. George Latimer, welcome back. Congratulations on your re-inauguration. Let's talk about that re-inauguration. You touched on many topics and many things you'd like to get done here now in your second term. Unfortunately, it begins again with having to deal with COVID-19 and trying to get Omicron under control. Well, I think, John, that, uh, you know, the COVID realities will be what defines this whole uh, this whole experience. If I do get the full eight years, finish my full four-year term, when people look back in 20, 30 years, if they see my picture on the wall with the other county executives of the PSA, well, he was the COVID guy because th- th- it really has affected every way we deliver services. But um, I do think this is the year that we're going to see ourselves fundamentally move away from COVID being the central reality of our lives. And we'll, we'll figure out how to deal with it and still live more normal lives. Things won't ever be exactly the way they were before, but I think we can substantially get back to that. If you look at where we were a year ago today, a year ago today, we had yellow zones and orange zones. We've forgotten that, which shut down restaurants right. and, and impacted our activities. We were just beginning the vaccination process. We had just opened up the county center about a week ago. Uh, for about a week, and we had people desperately wanting vaccinations, driving to Potsdam and Rochester to get vaccinations. We're so much further beyond that today. And even though the Omicron uh, surge has affected us with lots of additional cases and actually more hospitalizations and fatalities than we had previously, uh, it appears as we're speaking at this moment in the uh, in the middle of the month of January, those numbers now are starting to come down. We've had a drop of about uh, 20%, maybe 25% in the number of active cases from just a week ago, which was a high level of uh, active cases. So I'm hopeful that what we'll see by the time we get to the spring will be uh, much less impact in COVID. And then I think when we get to next October, this coming October, 10 months from now, we're going to know that we're going into the winter season. We know we're going to go into a period of higher COVID realities, just like we go into higher uh, flu realities. We'll probably all have to get a shot at that point in time, those of us uh, who are prepared to do it. We will probably still wear masks in certain situations, but not universally. Uh, if I know I'm going to go into a room full of people with lots of other people, uh, I might be prepared to wear them. If I go to a Knicks game or Ranger game, I'll probably still wear a mask, but I won't have to wear it in my everyday living. And then I think we get to the point where we, where we, you know, we just go through this uh, as a standard rite of passage. Mm-hmm. Do we need a mask and vaccine mandate both right now to help us get out of this? Because some, I see some people who were against these things kind of maybe giving up now on their end and saying, all right, let, what the heck, let's just do it and get it done. Well, vaccine mandates and mask mandates are two very different kinds of of things. Uh, A mask mandate is something that you do for part of the time. You don't wear a mask mandate when you're home. You don't have a mask on when you're home. You don't have a mask on when you're in the car by yourself. You don't have a mask on when you're walking outside. It's a little tough to walk outside these days, but people do. 
Right. You're a jogger every morning. You don't put a mask on when you're jogging. You have it with you, but you don't wear it. So it's not a universal situation. A vaccination thing is something different. It is literally a one-shot experience to be vaccinated. But what goes into the fear of vaccination is much deeper. With the masks, it's just, you don't like it. It's uncomfortable. I don't want to do it for ideology, whatever it is. Right now, the governor has a mask mandate for indoor situations. Uh, That mask mandate is scheduled to expire in two weeks. It may be extended. But I think that's really a function of where the level of, um, of infection is. And as the level of infection reduces, I expect her to lift that mandate. We have a mandate currently uh, that involves when you get on a county bus. And that makes sense. You're in a bus, it's close quarters. You're on the bus for half an hour, 40 minutes at most, maybe less than that. You have the mask on while you're on the bus. That's all we ask for. In the county office building, because we have people who work here, but we also have people who visit here, there's a mask mandate while you're in public settings. You're in the elevator, mask is on. You sit at your desk, as I am doing now. I'm distanced from anybody else in my office, mask off. So I think I think it's at a different level. Um, <clears throat> so I have not been a big mandate fan. Now people say, oh, you're a Democrat. Democrats want mandates. I, I come out of a business background that includes sales and marketing as my profession. And I learned a long time ago, I couldn't mandate people to sign the contract uh, necessary to get revenue from my, from my company, my, the contracts we did. I had to persuade. And so most of what my administration has been about in COVID is the art of persuasion and making something so easy for you to do. And you don't think of it as being a big thing. So you do it. And here in Westchester County, with our particular constituency, over 90 plus percent, one vaccine dose, close to that, two vaccine doses. The third vo- the third dose, the booster shot, uh, isn't at the same level yet but I think we'll get it to that level. And and that is all voluntary. We haven't forced anybody, we haven't forced our workforce to do it. Yet we have 100% of the law department, we have 100% of the planning department vaccinated, and we did it without making it mandated. So I think the, the argument over the mandate becomes a political argument. People who are conservative, dare I say, people on the Republican side of the ledger, I don't want a mandate. Uh, people on the Democrats say, you must have a mandate. My strategy has been balanced, I think, Vaccines, vaccination is important. It's necessary. We're not going to mandate it, but we're going to make it easy for you to do it. We're going to encourage you to do it and try to overcome your objections. The masks are a temporary uh, effort to try to reduce the spread. And that's all it is. It's not a new lifestyle uh, requirement. And I think we've had success in Westchester doing it this way. Do we need more stimulus money, especially for businesses in light of the resurgence of COVID with Omicron and with inflation affecting most areas of the country? Maybe not as much here in Westchester, but still people talk about it. Well, you know, it's interesting because the stimulus money that the feds provided first in the Coronavirus Cares Act uh, and then and then more recently in the ARPA, American Rescue Plan Act, is money that we have used productively in this county. Some of it we've used to deal with direct pandemic costs. We run tremendous overtime costs in our health department. We run nurses and doctors on double shifts because we don't have enough of them. And whenever some number of them are out, uh, we have to we have to compensate with overtime. Uh, we run overtime in the police department, in the corrections department. And that additional money helps those costs, which are really driven by the pandemic. If we didn't have the pandemic, we wouldn't be running those overtime costs. We also have used some of that money to help food pantries deliver food. The, the demand for food is much higher now because people in hourly jobs have lost their, lost their jobs. You've had industries like the hotel industry terribly decimated by this. The travel industry and leisure 
terribly decimated by this. Those industries need assistance and they may continue to need assistance from the federal government. Does it have to be an across the board stimulus for everybody all the time? I don't think so. I think you have to look now from this point forward about where is it needed? Where is it targeted? But you know, I'm not a federal official. Uh, you know, when I, <clears throat> excuse me, when I deal Pardon me, with Westchester County, I'm dealing in a county that has a strong economy under normal circumstances, has a million people, but a highly educated workforce, a lot of white collar work in Westchester County, which can be done remotely. And, you know, I generally favor remote working. I mean, you can't do it all the time every every day of the week, but you can do a fair bit of it remotely. And I think that keeps people away from the infection. And that's a good thing. So uh, I do think that uh, going forward, the stimulus would be more targeted. And it would be identified, frankly, to areas that need it greater. We need some of it, but I think more of it's needed in other parts of the country. However, what some parts of the country are not doing is they're not embracing vaccinations and they're not embracing masks. So what I think you're doing is, for ideological reasons, you're extending the time of COVID. We're trying to limit the time of COVID. We want to get past it so we can get back to normal, not proclaim that we're already normal which is what I think is happening in Texas from what I read, you know, oh, we're normal. We're okay. No, you're not okay. You've got, you've got Omicron still running wild in Texas, particularly rural Texas. And you're just saying, no, 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 no. Our ideology says, no, uh, it's not really that big a disease. And and you're not really addressing it, but I'm not running Texas. (laughs) You know, I'm running Westchester County. Right. And I think, you know, we're doing okay. Yeah. I was reading some numbers last night about some States down South Kentucky, the resurgence there. And I think there's just one County that where the hospitals in that county are not overrun basically with people right now. And you talk about infrastructure also, too, when at the reinauguration you discussed that. What did you mean when you talked infrastructure? What needs to get done? Well, infrastructure is a catch-all word. And I think uh, the way different people interpret it, uh, some people think of it as just bridges, roads, uh, sort of hard uh, physical uh, things. Infrastructure is really a little bit broader than that. It means all of the mechanisms that provide a backdrop for our life so that you can get up in the morning, do what you have to do uh, effectively uh, about your day. In a free society where you uh, raise your family and you uh, conduct your business, whatever it is. Uh, I've often said to friends of mine, think of how much you interact with other entities as you start your day. You wake up in the morning, you go to the, re- you go to the bathroom. You know, there's a sewer infrastructure that you need uh, from the sink and the shower and the toilet. There is an infrastructure of delivery of water when you turn the faucet on. Unless you have a well of your own or unless you have a generator in the back of the house that's giving you power, you need the electrical grid, you need the water grid, you need the sewer system. Those are infrastructure things that make your life well. If you wake up in the morning, you're a free American and you have money in your bank account, but if you don't have heat in your house, if, you, if your sewer system doesn't work, you can't get rid of your waste products, you can't get water out of the tap, You know how do you start your day? So all of those things, the roads you drive on, the traffic light that protects you from accidents at an intersection, all of that is infrastructure. And candidly, I believe infrastructure has been neglected in this country with a short-term thought in mind. The short-term thought is, I don't want to spend money, so I'm going to let something go. I always personalize this. If you uh, if you live at home, even if you live in a rental situation, but if you own a home and you see a little brown spot on, on the roof of your, uh, on the ceiling of your living room, you know, you go to your, you know, your spouse or something, or you look at it on your own and you say, ah, That's not good. It shouldn't be brown up there. What does it mean? It means something's wrong up under the ceiling. Now, can you ignore it for a day or two? Yeah. Could you ignore it for a week? Probably. A month? 
borderline. But whatever's wrong up there, if you avoid it for a year, sooner or later, that ceiling is coming down because there's something up there that's staining the thing. So what do you do? How long do you defer it? Well, if you don't have the money to open up the ceiling, you say, uh, well, I guess I'll, I'll have to deal with it. But you save, put some money aside. So then in a couple of months time, you have the money to open up the ceiling and do whatever is necessary. In government, we had situations like that. and We just flat out ignored it. I don't want to raise taxes. People can't see this problem underground. Uh, you have an infrastructure problem with sewer pipes in Mount Vernon, local municipal pipes, $200 million to fix it. You've got a dam at Lake Isle that has uh, had no repair or maintenance on it appreciably for the last 30, 40 years. Now you have a 10 to $12 million repair project on that. So it's very simple. There's an old TV commercial. And uh, my father used to highlight it because it was a father talking to his son about what's under the hood of a car. And he says, pay me now, fix it now, or pay right. me later, have a whole engine redone. And you're sitting there and the kid, I guess it's like 16 year old kids going, oh, okay. Well, yeah, it's okay. Your mature father teaches you a good lesson. Fix it now, don't wait until it costs you more. That's what we're trying to do. That's what I think we have done in the first term. We've done a number of infrastructure fixes, uh, and some of them are on parks and recreation, and some of them are on substructure things like sewer systems and sewer treatment plants. And we have more planned in the second term uh, that are necessary improvements. Some of them you can see, if you've been on a playland now, and, and the management of playland now has been uh, contracted out to standard amusement, but you're watching a park that's being rebuilt in many ways in ways that should have been done a little at a time over the last 20, 30 years. It wasn't done. Well, you know what? We're doing it. We're, we're spending the money and we financed it properly. We have a higher bond rating today than we had four years ago. And we're financing it properly. We can afford it. We can, we can have tax cuts, but at the same time, we can make an infrastructure improvement at Playland. We fixed Miller House. We fixed uh, the Spray Ridge Pools. We fixed the North County Trailway. We're working on the South County Trailway. We uh, contracted for a new um, uh, family court in New Rochelle. We're in the process of getting Memorial Field and, and Mount Vernon fixed. And we've got capital projects everywhere you look. And you know you don't have to put your name on them. You just have to do the job. And that's what we're trying to do. And I think the second term will show additional infrastructure improvements that people look at and say, oh, it's about time they paved that road. Well, that's what we had to do and we did it. Westchester County Executive George Latimer, Westchester <coughs> Cup of Joe political show. I'm John Marino, County Executive Latimer. You talked about the environment too. And we seem to be heading down a slippery slope with the environment, especially with all of the storms that have passed through this area the past few years in a variety of ways, shapes, and forms. Forgive me for catching up a little bit. Yeah, I, I think we do have, um, you know, a host of, of uh, different things. It's a big county and it's a diverse county, not just demographically diverse, but topo topographically diverse. Um, you know, I'll, I'll give you a different kind of uh, project. Uh, we've talked before about our intent to continue to transform our bus system from a diesel bus system to a hybrid electric and electric bus system. Uh, it can't all be electric because the electric pulling power of the electric engines of today do not allow us to negotiate some of the slopes that we have on the western side of the county, the hilliness of Yonkers, Ossining, Peekskill. Uh, so we need to have some hybrid electric where we have uh, some, some additional pulling power. But that transition, I think we have 330 buses in our system. I think we have about 180 now that have been converted to hybrid electric or electric, uh, and that's going to continue to happen over the course of the next few years. The benefit to the um, environment is clear. 
If you're standing on Mamaroneck Avenue in White Plains, or if you're standing in front of Petrillo Plaza in Mount Vernon, and one of the diesel buses goes by and pops out some exhaust, it's awful. If you go by and an electric bus is going by, no exhaust. Uh, we spend a lot less money on buying fuel each year. So we're using less fossil fuel and we have less of a negative result when we have those that are electric buses. That involves not just buying electric buses or hybrid buses. We also have to have the infrastructure at the bus station to charge the buses. Infrastructure meaning, in this case, electric charging stations inside the bus depot in Yonkers and Valhalla. You can't see it, you know, because you don't go in those. I mean, you personally, but I mean, any of us as citizens don't go inside the bus depot. And you don't realize how much that takes. You have to retrain mechanics in order to deal with electric buses. They operate differently. They look differently under the hood, so to speak, than the diesel buses do. All of that is embedded uh, when you say, we're going to convert our bus fleet. So in this office, I sit here with my executive colleagues. We talk it through. We understand what the price is. And we say, let's convert our bus fleet. Go do it. I go out and give speeches. We're converting our bus system. What does it mean? You got you to gotta go out to bid with a handful of companies that can provide electric buses. It costs more to go to the federal government. They give us some money. Former Congress members, Nita Lowy, Elliot Engel, helped us. New current Congress members, Jamal Bowman and Mondeo Jones, are helping us get some additional money to fund it. And then somewhere in there is the infrastructure in the garage. Somewhere in there is the retraining of the mechanics. Somewhere in there is retraining the bus drivers a little bit because the buses operate a little bit differently. And when we do the new buses, we make sure there's a protective panel for the bus driver a plastic shield to protect them when the, when the customer comes in. If he sneezes on you, you don't get it, and all those different kinds of things. And so from an area of public policy, you set public policy in this room, but it's implemented through all those different steps. And as I said, at the end of the day, nobody in 20 years will say, oh, George Latimer was the guy that, trans, uh, that, that, that transitioned the bus fleet. All they'll know is it's an electric bus system, and it works well, and it's less impactful on the society. What's the main focus of the 2022 budget? Well, I think what we're doing is uh, investments, as, as I mentioned, in a host of different areas. Um, and, and we point to them with pride. We've made investment in economic development. We have money that we put aside in this budget uh, that will help us help big organizations like Regeneron and Morgan, and then also small organizations like local chamber of commerce. We put money in this budget, $50 million in capital, to help advance affordable housing. Now, the county does not have a housing agency to actually build the affordable housing. And, and we have precious few examples of actual land that we can develop affordable housing on what we own. So we become an incentive entity on the side. We help with money to help you buy the land because if the land is owned in a private sector, somebody sells it and they want to sell it for the, uh, you know, the best possible return on investment. And when they do sell it, they could sell it to a private entity who's going to build market rate housing on it. Our, our contribution to money can help write it down so that the affordable housing developer, the uh, the Bill Balthers, the Ken Carneys, the Lula Rizzas of the world who know how to do affordable housing and can finance it and structure it, you get the cost of the housing down. We also have money set aside in this budget, capital budget, for infrastructure for the housing projects. What does that mean? Extension of a sewer pipe. <clears throat> you know, the, the site is such that you have to extend a sewer pipe from the trunk line in the street into the project to connect it, that's another, whatever it is, $30,000, I don't know what it is, $30,000, $40,000. Uh, the county can pay for that 
cut the cost of construction down, make the units affordable. You may need curb cuts. You may need a traffic light because the traffic coming in and out of the uh, complex will clog the street and the requirement is to put another traffic out there. And so we pay for the 150,000, whatever it is for traffic light. So those are things that we put in this budget that are financed and so forth. We put money in this budget to begin the process of implementing one of the most important recommendations that came out of our police reform uh, task force. You may remember in the aftermath of the death of George Floyd, uh, then Governor Cuomo tasked with all governments to do an analysis of their police function and create reforms. We actually created a committee before the governor tasked us to do it. And you know, most people think, well, this is going to involve upsetting the police and uh, putting the police against the community. We said, no, we think there's areas of common interest. One of those areas we have put $6 million in this budget to implement is uh, the creation of mental health crisis response teams. And we have contracted with eight in eight different locations in the county, the urban settings of the county. You can pretty much figure them out, Mount Vernon, Rochelle, Yonkers, White Plains, Greenberg, um, where when there's a certain kind of incident, it gets called in is a person having sort of a mental health breakdown and they have a weapon, they have a knife or something. Yes, the police have to respond, but we also have a mental health crisis team, a couple of professionals also respond. And then when the, in, at the point of the incident, the police and the mental health professionals discuss, look at what they're dealing with and potentially the mental health professionals can use their skills first, because they're trained to do this, to, to de-escalate the situation. And if those things work right, the guy with the knife doesn't wind up getting shot because he won't respond to a police order. He, he winds up being de-escalated, calmed down enough to be apprehended and end the potential of the incident. That's the hope of it. And that's what we've implemented uh, with uh, this budget. And uh, we'll see how well it works. We'll see how many of these incidents happen. And when we do this, John, we're doing this not just with the county police response, with the local police, with the local police. And so we're, we're basically saying to Ardsley police, to Rye Brook police, to Pound Ridge police, you don't have to have a professional on duty that can do this. We're going to provide from the county a partner for you to do this, save the local budget, work with the local police department and solve the problem. That's what's in this budget. We put money in this budget, an additional, we put in 5.6 million, the Board of Legislators added up to about $10 million of additional money for childcare benefits. Now, I'm long past the young parent stage of my life, but I do recall uh, what happens if you have a couple and both of them need to work to drive the economy of the family, and yet you have a child or multiple children that, that need childcare. It's a big expense. Sometimes the, the expense of childcare can offset the revenue being brought in by one of the two spouses because it's that expensive. So by putting in place additional money for childcare, now the governor in her new budget has just put a significant amount of money toward childcare. We're basically saying we recognize that childcare costs could be almost as expensive as rent for a family or mortgage payment. And, and we want the economy, this is, you know, this is not just kind-hearted, social, oh, you're a Democrat, oh, you're a liberal. This is economic development. You get both of those two parents out in the workforce working productively, and they have the comfort of knowing they've got quality childcare to watch their children, help their children grow, get them ready for school if it's, you know, before the age of school, or if it's an after-school childcare setting. And, uh, and then you've advanced the society economically. That's hard-headed economic development when you do this. And so I highlight that primarily because I want people to understand that this budget is not just what you spend it on, but what's the value of what you get 
for the spending. The value of the mental health crisis team is you don't have a dead man in the middle of an intersection who needs help and medical treatment. And, and if he gets those things, he can you know, not be a threat to society. It's spending of the money to help a family afford childcare so that both adults in the family can be productive working members of the society and, by the way, pay their taxes and be active in their PTAs and all that other stuff that's important to us. And, and, and that's why I said in my inaugural address, some people say that government is the problem. And I said, I reject that notion. Government in the hands of temperate, thoughtful people who are not super ideological, I have my ideology for sure, but I listen to all sides of the spectrum. I meet with a Margaret Kunzio, who's a registered conservative, the minority leader of the Board of Legislators. I like her. We agree on a lot of things. We disagree on some things. Where we disagree, we disagree as friends and as fellow Americans. But when we can find agreement, we can deal with actual problems in the society. And to me, when government does those things, government is extremely relevant in the society. And, and I get frustrated because what I hear on television, certainly, and it's national stuff, you hear the far right and the far left arguing ideology all the time, all the time, making people get turned off to, to the system, almost softening us up for tyranny. So some guy comes in and says, we don't need this debate in society. We just need to have control. Give me the control and I can make it all work. I thought you'd want that. You want a society that's open and free and debates, but debates toward accomplishing a task, not debates because there's two permanent interests that are fighting for constant power. And, and now I have a chance at a county government, I'm not a you know governor or president, but, but I have the chance at this level of government to try to implement that philosophy. I think we've done well for four years, and I hope we can do well for the next four. Someone else like you, who was known for crossing the aisle and getting things done. Good friend of yours, Reggie Lafayette, Westchester's Democratic Elections Commissioner, one time Democratic Party chairman in the county, came out of Mount Vernon, came out of the ranks like you did. This goes back half a century, you and Reggie Lafayette, you guys grew up together basically in Mount Vernon. What does his passing mean to you? Well, it's, first and foremost, it's a very personal thing. Uh, and there were people who knew Reggie uh, as well or better than I did over the years, family members, people like Gary Pretlow, uh, who, uh, you know, I, I moved out of Mount Vernon and did other things in my life. And he stayed in Mount Vernon all these years. So I don't want to act like I am the critical, you know, most critical friend. But Reggie and I were 22, 23 year old guys who, like any 22 or 23 year old guys, would go out socially. Uh, you know, and in Mount Vernon, which is a racially mixed community, there's a little ebony ivory, ivory thing going on. Um, and uh, with the uh, young ladies of the day that we were with, we would double date, uh, and sometimes four couples, and, uh, and we'd pal around, we'd talk sports, we'd talk politics, we were active at a low level of politics. Reggie and I did the grunt work of politics. You'd have people who were running for office, and they'd say, uh, Reggie, George, why don't you go help them at the train station? We'd stand there handing out literature, you know, uh, before we went to work that day. He was in the insurance industry, uh, I did uh, some budget analyst work at, at, a, at a local college. Uh, we both wound up working for the city of Mount Vernon. And then I went back into the private sector. He became from deputy controller, city clerk of Mount Vernon, and then board of elections commissioner. I wind up uh, moving to another part of the county, getting in public office. You know my story. And the next thing you know, he's the county Democratic chairman. And I'm, you know, the county executive. And who knew that when we were managing a Little League baseball team right. in 1978 at Brush Park, 
and he was the first base coach and I was the manager. We were talking about who we we're going to put in right field for the, for the fifth inning. And what are we going to do about our pitcher? Was he running out of steam that we were going to wind up, you know, being as prominent as we were in the politics and the government of Westchester County. He is, he was a very soft-spoken man. He, he was a gentleman. He grew up in the South, moved to Westchester in his early twenties. That's when I met him. Uh, and he went through the experience of being a black man growing up in the South, which is not easy. I didn't live that experience, but he did. Um, and the dignity that uh, comes from whatever your demographic is uh, made him very sensitive to having diversity as he ex as he used his political authority over the years. You have more judges who are female, who are African-American, Latino, uh, because of Reggie Lafayette, because in the Democratic Party, he would push to make sure that we had diverse tickets of people running for office and, and that there was a balance on the court. And he knew that when, when you have uh, litigants that come in a family court, uh, you know, they look up at the, uh, you know, uh, at, at the judicial bench and they see somebody that looks like them, that may can understand the world that they come from, that they have a better confidence in the judicial system. You still have to have legal knowledge and judicial temperament. It doesn't matter what your skin color or your gender is. But he understood that diversity was important. And, and he, frankly, was, was arguably as important a political figure uh, during this period of time when this county was once, you remember it, was once a solidly Republican county. You had all Republican countywide officials as late as the 1990s. Uh, you had, you know, 11 out of 17 county legislators, Republican. We sent Republican to Congress, Joe Diaguardi. We had Republicans like Nick Spano, Guy Vallella, Vinnie Libel were the most powerful state senators. And now, 30, 40 years later, Democrats are in all of those positions. Andre Stewart Cousins, Shelley Mayer. Uh, we have 15 out of 17 elected Democrats in the board. And, and that transition happened primarily during Reggie Lafayette's years. And what's important is, is that while the Democrats became very prominent in my position here in this office, uh, I'm not the first Democrat, only the third Democrat, but um, as we've won elections, that we stayed balanced, that we also understood that the Republican presence in this county was not to be uh, uh, avoided, was not to be treated as, as irrelevant, that there is still a two-party system in this county. And we Democrats have to earn our elections, and we have to work across the aisle when we do have authority. And Reggie understood all of those things. So uh, it's a terrible loss. It's a sudden loss. And John, as we all know in our lives, when we lose people suddenly that we don't expect, it's tough when we know that they're failing, but we get a chance to say goodbye. We get a chance. The last night of my father's life, I had a chance to say goodbye in his hospital room. You know, I didn't get a chance to say goodbye to Reggie. You know, we, we were planning to meet uh, on a topic in a couple of days. I even texted him that morning, not knowing that he was gone, saying we got to get together to do this, that, and the other thing. And uh, so on a personal level, it's tough. But we also know that none of us, I said this in my inaugural, none of us have promised forever. We know that, uh, you know, great athletes lose their skill, great singers lose their voice. Those are words straight from my inaugural. And I understand that. And uh, so you have to learn to accept it. Even the older you get, sometimes it's even harder to accept when they're longtime friends. But I wish... And I hope for him the peace that comes hopefully to all of us when we reach that point. Condolences on Reggie Lafayette's passing and best of luck in your second term now underway. We'll talk again, hopefully soon. Thank you, John. Always a pleasure to talk to you. Always. Same here. George Latimer, County Executive here in Westchester. I'm John Marino on the Cup of Joe political show here on Westchester Talk Radio, produced by Shark Creative. Made possible by Robeson Oil, the house that service built. 
Buy LaPolis Electric, don't be left in the dark, get LaPolis. By Hightower Westchester, managing your wealth through a fiduciary standard. By White Plains Hospital, by Michael Labriola, landscape design and construction of Armonk, and by Tompkins Mayopac Bank. Catch all of our Westchester, Rockland, Putnam and Duchess, Orange and Fairfield County talk radio programming on our YouTube channel, Shark Creative YouTube, and download our app now. You can do that. It's called Westchester Talk. You're listening to Westchester Talk Radio. Powered by Shark Media, a division of Shark Creative. And made possible by Entergy, Indian Point Energy Center. Visit safesecurevinyl.com.